Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. When you think of the word hymn, what comes through your mind? What is a hymn in your opinion? What's your emotional response to the word? The reason I ask is that the understanding of what a hymn is and how it is used has a long, varied, and often controversial history that has evoked and continues to evoke not only extensive debate, but also deep emotions, both positive and negative, even to this day. From the beginning of the Christian church at Pentecost, singing has been a part of Christian worship, and particularly, hymns have been a part of Christian worship. Whoever it was that wrote the New Testament letters to the Ephesians and Colossians, whether it was Paul or somebody else, used the same trilogy of terms. In the New Revised Standard Version, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 read, Be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts. And Colossians 3.16 reads, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. Obviously, we have a good notion about what the letter writer meant by psalms, but not so clearly what is meant by hymns and spiritual songs, and how each of these three musical forms were distinguished from each other in the minds of the first generation of Christian congregations. What is apparent? is that whatever the singing was that occurred during the first generation of Christian worship, it was predominantly congregational. There have been times throughout Christian history when what was meant by hymns was synonymous with congregational singing. At other times, hymns have been understood more narrowly to be a specific type of Christian music and congregational song. A recent example is the distinction made between hymns and choruses that you find in the so-called worship wars between traditional and contemporary worship styles. The debate is still active. Congregational singing has not always fared well throughout Christian history. For so long, when Latin was the language of worship, singing in worship became limited to monks and choirs. It was only after the Protestant Reformation, when both scripture and music were put in the language of the people, and that there was a rejection of the worship order of the Mass, that singing became, once again, predominantly congregational. Even then, the singing of hymns took a while to be accepted and developed. The influence of those from the Calvinist and Reformed traditions limited congregational singing only to psalmody. But eventually, hymns were so accepted that collections of them became the worship book of numerous congregations. Ever since the development of degree programs in church music, hymnology has been a required course, and for nearly 100 years now, a society has been devoted to the hymn. To help us understand what that devotion fully entails are my guests today, Mike McMahon who is the executive director of the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada, and Brian Hain, 
who is the director of the Center for Congregational Song, which is the resource and programmatic arm of the Hymn Society. This will be the first in a series of conversations that I'll get to have with those in the society. Welcome, Mike and Brian. I am grateful for you being with me here tonight. Thank you for this. Glad to be here, David. Yeah, glad to be here. So why don't we begin by uh, asking, what is a hymn? Uh, since there's such a thing as a hymn society, then we ought, I guess, ought to understand uh, what a hymn is first. So talk to us about that. What's a hymn? Mike, Mike you want to go first since you're the executive director <laughs> of the hymn society? Well, sure, I'll start. I'll start. Uh, um, I, I think that a lot of people think of him as, a, as, uh, as metrical uh, and um, in, in a book. Um but I think that uh, the, the, the um, definition is probably broader than that, even, even among people who have to have a, a narrow, fairly narrow definition. For example, if you think about hymns of the New Testament, you know, they're not, they're not metrical. Uh, they are, they're, 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 verse, they're in verse form. Um, but I think that you know, it's putting stress on the notion of the hymn is on what are people singing? And, um, and I think in the hymn society, even though, uh, we may tend to think of hymns as items in the hymnal oftentimes our focus is really on what are what are people actually singing when they worship together and uh, i think as a result our our definition of him is uh becoming broader as time goes on and i'll let brian pick it up from there yeah i mean one of the one of the problems with the word hymn and this this happens with a lot of words in various languages um it has such a long history that you've got several official definitions as as far as like Merriam Webster or the Canterbury Dictionary of Hymnology, or, you know, like official sources, you know. But then you'll have all these colloquial definitions of like like Mike just alluded to of how people use the word. So I'll go someplace and they'll say, let's sing a hymn. And by that they mean let's do some sort of congregational singing, right? It could be any song form. Um and but they just kind of call it a hymn because that's what we call things we sing together at church. Or I could be in a certain context and they'll say, let's write a hymn. And what they mean is a metered, strophic, uh, you know, text. They're not even talking about the music, right? Because that's a hymn tune. And they're just talking about the hymn, which is the text. So, and then kind of everything in between. Um, and, and, and that's one of the kind of ongoing things that we talk about as a society is, is, um, what do we mean when we say the hymn society? What do we What do we mean? And we've kind of grown. You know, various definitions have been offered over the years, but it continues to get broader and broader as the church's song gets broader and broader. I would say. And you know, I think in the history of the hymn society, it's probably it, it, at the outset it tended to be more narrow, as as mm -hmm. the way that Brian was just talking about. But over time, as we you know become exposed to uh, more different cultural expressions and uh, different uh, cultural movements within the United States. I mean, I, I think we're seeing that what people are singing is uh, a lot more varied than it had been uh, at one time. And and that's that's actually, I mean, I'm, I've, I think we're going to get to this with the difference between the Center for Congregational Song and the Hymn Society, or or lack thereof. Um, but uh, when when we wanted to kind of start doing some new things we talked about changing the name of the hymn society because we we're like, well, you know, hymn is a word that means very particular things to certain people. 
Um, so in that way, it can be a positive thing because some people love hymns and that tradition of hymn singing. And um, But some people don't even know what a hymn is. They don't know what that word is. Um, and there's kind of everything in between. Or some people find it negative, right? Oh, not the boring hymns because they've had negative <laughs> experiences in the past. So the word hymn is just kind of loaded. Um, so we very purposefully named the Center for Congregational Song. You, uh, something that uses more broad language that's a little bit more descriptive and has less baggage, while at the same time maintaining the name the Hymn Society because the Hymn Society comes with this legacy of people who have shepherded the church's song for so long, and it means a lot to all of us that are already a part of the Hymn Society. So we didn't want to lose that identity. So it's, we'll t- I'm sure we'll talk about that later. You know, it, it, it is funny when when I was being interviewed for this position. One of the members of the search committee said to me, you know, there are two things wrong with our name, the Hymn Society, hymn and society. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, because he said, you know, they, 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 they have such, um, such a dusty resonance. And mm. uh, it is interesting that even our journal, which is called the hymn, the subtitle of the journal is a journal of congregational song, just to clarify that we're about more than just the traditional strophic metrical kind of uh, form. Mm-hmm. Has it always had that? Sometime? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'd have to go back and look. I, I can, I can look right now while we're talking, if you want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The title goes back to the 1940s. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's start back then. You know, why, why the hymn society, you know, what was the motivation for its beginning? Well, I believe at the outset, the Hymn Society was formed by a group of interested people to help churches sing, um, make sure they were singing the right things. I, I think they, they had a vested interest in, in uh, promoting certain types of, of hymnody uh, and making sure that churches were paying attention to good hymnody. Um, I think that, you know, of course, a lot of our members are interested in good worship and want, to, want people to be singing uh, texts and and tunes that help to enrich their their uh, their life of discipleship, but mm. uh, I, I think though that we have tended to be a little more open-minded about what what what's good and what's acceptable uh, than perhaps some of our uh, founders were. Yeah, the 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 history of the hymn society is interesting as far as who was allowed to be in it because it started out as being quite exclusive, only editors of hymnals. And publishers of him, or maybe not even publisher. I think it started out really as like people who were actively editing or working on committees to f- create hymnals were allowed to be a part of it. And and then you know they were like, well, the, the publishers should be a part of this too. And then at some point they're like, well, you know, the people who, um, the people who write these songs should probably be a part of this conversation too. And and so over the years, more and more kind of angles of people who contribute to the church's song were included, but at the very beginning, it was, it was a very small group of, of editors really who, who wanted to talk about, yeah, how do we curate and decide what people are going to be singing through these hymnals? It's like, how long did that last? And and when did y'all begin to change? We should have invited Paul. Yeah, I was going to say we have some historians. <laughs> in, our, in fact, we have we have. People, I'll get him. You know, I'll, I'll get him. He, he's coming. He's he's writing a history of the hymn society. Yeah. Right now in preparation for our centennial next year. 
So uh, he we're talking about Paul Richardson, mm-hmm, my audience, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah, he's uh, he's he and uh, Margaret Leesk are, uh, are hard at work on a on a uh, written history of the hymn society. And they're going through the archives uh, very, very carefully to 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 um, document some of the things you're talking about. But I, I think that the history of the hymn society is like a pebble being thrown in the water. And the circles have continued to widen mm-hmm. uh, over a, a long period of time until today. You just see this these big circles with intersections of hymn writers and tune writers and songwriters and music directors and pastors and publishers and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and people who just like singing hymns. I mean, so, so that our conferences are this amazing uh, gathering of people who, who bring all these different perspectives and broadly ecumenical too, which I think uh, the original group tended to be a little more narrow in terms of their um denominational uh, affiliations we've got them all now so our our journal was called just the hymn until 1989 and in 1989 oh, okay. uh in the in the first issue of that year which was featuring our our upcoming annual conference um it it added the subtitle a journal of congregational song and interestingly that that issue focused on African-American worship traditions mm-hmm. and featured because lead me, guide me the, the hymnal uh, w- was being published, I believe. Um, so that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. I think uh, David, you perhaps have experienced some of the uh, change also because some of the key people came to be the professors the professors of hymnology who mm-hmm. were influencing pastors and musicians and publishers and hymn writers. And uh, this uh, has, has had traditionally a very academic, strong academic aspect to it. Uh, research and scholarship, I think, have been an important element in the, in the society mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that you, uh, you know, broadened. Uh, not just as you talked about of adding publishers and hymn writers and composers and things, but uh, it it's it's been a surprisingly global uh, thing. It's moved beyond a focus upon uh, kind of Western hymnody uh, to global hymnody. Kind of when did that transition begin to occur? Nineteen ninety nine, right, Mike. Well, of course, that's when it deliberately did so. But of course, before, yeah. before that, because of Michael Hahn and, and John mm-hmm. Bell and the people like that who were saying, hey, there are, there are people singing out there uh, in ways that, that we're not uh, and starting to bring some of that in uh, that had an influence. And the big turning point, though, as Brian says, 1999. Why don't you go ahead and talk about that? Uh, Jan Crable, who's Mike's predecessor in, in, in his position um, and is a, a world-renowned organist in Kansas City, um, tell loves to tell the story of her first hymn society conference. So she's an organist and she goes to a hymn society conference, which is in 1999 in Vancouver. And she shows up and it turns out that that four day conference, there was not an organ to be seen because that was the conference where they decided to invite global song leaders from literally around the globe to, to present at this conference. And so uh, it was Ito Lo from Taiwan and Patrick Matson Carey uh, in Zimbabwe or from Zimbabwe and Pablo Sosa from Argentina 
and Michael Hahn kind of played the MC of the conference because Michael had had been doing his research on these folks. And so over the course of that conference, they never heard the organ. And that was a that was the first time ever for the hymn study conference not to have a single organ played. And it kind it kind of knocks yeah. some people over the head. And of course, but Jan, of course, is uh a fearless she's just a fearless person in general, uh, but also a fearless musician. And that's one of the things that endeared her to the hymn society was that it was this group who uh, loved the organ, but they weren't af seemingly afraid to just see what else was out there. And then that really changed the nature of the hymn society. And people point to that conference a lot as a, as a turning point. Okay. That's, that's fairly recent. <laughs> it is. It is fairly recent. So it's less yeah. than twenty-five years. Sure. Well, then um, you you are uh, you have these kind of dual functions among you, Mike. You have you know you're the director of the hymn society, and Brian, you're the director of congregational song, uh, the center for congregational song. How did that dimension begin? How did you begin thinking that we needed this second emphasis and Talk about that a little bit. Um, when um, George Shorney died in, um, well, it was right before the Colorado Springs Conference. So what would that be, Mike? That's uh, 20, 2012, 2011, something like that. And you, and you should say who he is. So George George Shorney is the longtime uh, owner in, of uh, Hope Publishing. And uh, the father of Scott Shorney and, and the whole Shorney family who who continued to run Hope Publishing. And um, George was a, a longtime supporter of Congregational Song. I mean, Hope has published uh, God knows how many hymnals on, over the years. I don't know. Um, but he was a, a huge supporter of the Hymn Society. When he passed away, he left a sizable gift um, from his estate um, to go to the Hymn Society. The kind of gift that's kind of a game changer. And... So the board said, okay, um, what, are, what are we going to do with this gift? Um, so a large portion of it went to secure more of our endowment, to increase our endowment, to make sure that we we're secure long-term. But then the rest of it, some of it went towards funding even more of an endowment campaign. And the reason for that is that the the board was sensing this another kind of cultural shift in the membership of the hymn society kind of like that 1999 conference they were sensing an energy um they, they didn't know what it was but they knew that they, they were on the cusp of something and so they did uh at the winnipeg conference um which was 2012 i think they yes. put out a they put out a hammock on the wall this kind of like uh, fit, like a, a net in the shape of a hammock. And they invited people during the conference to write down if regardless of money, if the hymn society could do anything to live out our mission, to encourage, promote and enliven congregational song, what would you like to see the hymn society do? So our members, you know, hundreds of folks during this conference were dropping in their dreams into this hammock and the executive committee who I just rolled onto as like the token young person um, uh, started going through these hundreds of dreams. And, and there were some very definite uh, themes. 
things like we need to support solo pastors more, you know, these pastors who are in, and we need to support songwriters more. And, you know, we need to, they, there were some, some streams that we, we could do more. And so we took that money from George Shorney and used it to have an endowment campaign to fund this new initiative where all of these dreams that the membership had really given the board um, could come true. And so that's what started the Center for Congregational Song. And what and it's also what funded it. <laughs> um, the generosity of the Shorney family plus the generosity of countless other donors um, who who contributed. And so now we're we're just running as fast as we can to bring all those dreams to life and make a difference. Basically, that's how it started. So, you know, and I, and I think that it, it goes to the nature of organizations. You know, I think at one time the Hymn Society was basically a conference and a magazine. Hmm. And like a lot of organizations, you know, it's a place where the members can get together and share the interests they have. But I think healthy organizations are all about their mission. Like, mm. why do we exist? What, what what difference does it make that this organization exists? And mm. I think that that the members of the Hymn Society and leaders decided the difference we exist to make is to revitalize congregational song and mm. in all of its aspects, in all of its settings, in all of its cultural milieus, and to and to establish the Center for Congregational Song as a a, a deliberately mission oriented aspect of the Hymn Society. Mm. So. We're not really two separate organizations, but the Center for Congregational Song is the is the propeller. It's the mm-hmm. it's the mission driving the organization to make a difference in the world to to exist for something. That same board member that Mike mentioned earlier uh, used to refer to it as the it, it when we were dreaming up the center. He he would say it needs to be our apostolic arm, right? The center the the hymn site is doing great work. And we need to keep doing it and doing it well. Um, but we need a, a part of us to go out into the world to both connect, you know, to say, hey, look how great we are. But also, hey, look how great you are. We need to learn from you and to start these relationships. Um, and so that's a large part of what we do is uh, we try to make connections and connect the hymn society to the broader world of congregational song, but also to connect those out there that don't know about us to the work that we're doing. That's good. That's a good description uh, and image. I like that. Um, we'll talk more then consequently uh, about your mission uh, that, that you just mentioned. Uh, and then, uh, you know, there's also on your web page uh, the stances that the Center for Congregational Song has. Uh, so let's kind of talk those a little bit. Mike, well, you want to take the mission and then I'll do this, these stances? Sure. I mean, so starting with the mission, I mean, it's three simple words to encourage, promote, and enliven the congregational song. So uh, it, now there are a lot of aspects to that. I mean, it, it, <laughs> the, the, the scholarship that, that uh, studies what people are singing is part of it. The creation of song is part of it. The uh, learning how to, to do it better, how learning what, in fact, people are, are creating, what they're singing, um, and and uh, listening to what's going on out there are all part of it. But in in, in the end, uh, if the hymn society is succeeding at being itself, it means people have been encouraged to sing. They have uh, that song has been promoted in the world, and uh, and they've been enlivened in it. It's 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 making a difference in lives of churches and communities and uh, and in the world. 
So, uh, well, why do you think? Um, why do you think it is that congregational singing goes through these periods of being endangered? And is that happening now? I, I I don't think that congregational song ever is actually endangered because I I think it's built into the fabric of humanity. I think we can sometimes worry about it going away or changing or whatever the case may be. But I, I, I can't imagine a world that God has created that doesn't incorporate congregational song in some way. Um, that doesn't, that, that would, that would mean that we're not being fully human. Um, hmm. so that it's a little bit of a fallacy in my mind. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I agree with you, Brian, but I, I also think that I have some concerns about the state of congregational singing in, in various settings. I mean, I mean, for example, it's just even within American culture, uh, where, where, you know, you can't even get people to sing the national anthem together. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's, you can't even get one person to sing it in tune. It turns out. <laughs> oh, well, well, there is that too. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 I mean, there, there's that cultural thing. Yeah. I think churches have gone through ups and downs uh, mm-hmm. with it as well. And, and, uh, uh, and, and I, and I do think that, you know, there's some, some, something to be looked at in terms of the relationship between uh, the entertainment consumerist approach to music in our culture and uh, the active participation that uh, congregational singing sort of implies. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I mean, those are all topics we could dig into and, and have a, have a field day with, but I, I totally agree with Brian's primary insight that, that congregational singing is based on the nature of human beings and, and we are vocal people, you know, we vocalize it, we vocalize together. There's power in that. And, uh, we're going to be drawn into it. I will, I will, nu- I will nuance my stance that, that when, when the church doesn't lead the way in encouraging a culture of congregational song and, and group singing um, in various ways, um, secular culture will take over. And, and, uh, and I've experienced this. I mean, at, at, like Mike said, as, as the general American culture kind of doesn't really have much of a, a group singing thing going on as far as, you know, in, in a lot of places and the church's song is kind of all over the place right now. Um, the, 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 the fastest growing part of ACDA, the American Choral Directors Association is their community choir mm-hmm. uh, arm. That is the fast. It is by far the fastest growing segment of their various uh, kind of pieces of the puzzle that they deal with. And there's this there's this growing underground community of circle singers um, that do like vocal improv in groups through group singing. And uh, it's interesting to watch all these other things start to pop up where that need isn't being fulfilled by the church or larger society. Yeah, all those people used to sing in church choirs. They 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 have found a place to sing. It's just yeah. not in church. It's just not in and, church. Uh, and uh, that, that that is a concern. And I, yeah. I I also think there's there's been sort of an objectification of worship. You know that that worship has become a commodity, and uh, churches are so anxious to sell worship that music has played a part in that. You know mm. that uh, that uh, you know that part of our marketing is is our music, and I think that's deadly for for a, a culture of healthy singing together. Well, it seems to me, uh, you know, because, you know, I'm a church musician as well as a theologian and, and my own experiences, both as a, as a church musician and a pastor, um, is that getting congregational members to want to sing is a difficult thing because they feel that they, 
don't sing well, they can't sing, that there is a dis- marked difference between those with musical talent who should be in mm. the choir and those that aren't. And then, and then in particular, karaoke aside, <laughs> uh, most, most pop music is not the kind of music that normal individuals can sing. Mm. Uh, and if that's what's shaping uh, congregational song, then I can see why uh, it's a it's an uphill battle, uh, really, to promote. I mean, because I think about you know like Irish culture and and Welsh culture, uh, where they sing together in pubs all the time. Um, you know, we don't have that kind of culture here in the United States much. Uh, where people, lay folks, you know, lay folks just uh, sing together for enjoyment. Uh, it has to be something that's specific. Well, you're right. I mean, there's certain cultures that are that are more um, uh, more into it than others. I mean, like if you look in Europe, I, I think, you know, the Southern, Southern Europeans don't sing very well together. You know, I mean, the Italians, the Spanish, uh, there's not, 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 not great, but, you know, the Germans and, uh, man, they, 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 and the Polish. I mean, my, my family is uh, uh, from from Polish immigrants. Man, they they sang all the time, but uh, not so much my Irish uh, uh, relatives. No. And as you know, you may know, Thomas Day wrote a book called "Why Catholics Can't Sing," and he basically he basically <laughs> blamed it on the Irish. He said, you know, it's because the Irish were. <laughs> he did. He, he said, you know, the, the Irish were forced to worship underground secretly, and so they couldn't be loud. So they, they couldn't, they stopped singing in worship. So, and then they came over to the United States, and they, were, they weren't used to singing, and they, they brought that um, disconnect between singing and worship with them to the United States. That was his thesis. Well, so what do you do, before we shift to, to Brian's uh, part of it, uh, what do you do to enhance and encourage and congregational song well i'll start and brian can chime in but I, I i think first and foremost people have to have something to sing about and if, if you haven't created an environment in which people feel that they have something to sing about mm. they're not going to sing so so there's a pastoral dimension to, to congregational song mm-hmm. I, I mean i think if if people are in communities where it's just you know going through the motions or you know where it's like oh god enduring another sunday well yeah sure enough people aren't going to sing uh, it's when it's when they've got strong bonds and they feel that their community stands for something. Uh, yeah, that, then they're going to stand up and sing. So I think it starts with the pastoral aspect. Um, but then there, of course, also means having competent musicians who know how to lead people singing, mm-hmm. how to choose music that people can sing, how to how to uh, to uh, introduce music that people can sing, how to accompany way, in ways that people can sing. I mean, there's a technical aspect to it too. So. Um, Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there, Brian. You can pick up from there. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with Mike that I, you know, the, the, the number one thing is this this pastoral slash cultural understanding and and leadership. Um, some of the best singing, some of the best congregational singing I've ever heard has been at contemporary uh, contemporary Christian music co- uh, concerts. They'll turn those speakers off. They'll go fully a cappella for a second. And a whole stadium is singing together, just all and on pitch, like it's good singing. You know, it's like a stadium of like thousands of people. Um, so you know, like I, I really, I'm just totally over the whole like genre thing. 
as a scapegoat for why people do or don't sing. Because I've heard people sing, I've heard congregations sing jazz, I've heard congregations sing hymns, I've or you know, like strophic old school hymns, I've heard gospel, CCM, everything. I've heard congregations sing all of this stuff quite well. What it comes down to many times is is the leadership expecting the people to sing? Have they built a culture of singing that they've maintained intentionally? Are they leading in a way instrumentally that actually encourages singing? And there are lots of conversations to be had there, especially with sound with like uh, sound levels and stuff with amplified instruments, but um, but also the organ. Um, you know, and I find John Bell's book, even though it's gosh, probably what. 15, 20 years old now, the singing thing and the singing thing too. Those are wonderful resources to to tap into reasons why people don't sing and how to encourage it. Um, yeah, but the, the leadership and the cultures and being intentional about this cannot be understated. Plus, John Wesley's 10 rules for uh, for sing, congregational singing. Have you read yeah. those? Oh, those, yeah. really, those are really great too. Um, and, and you know, I just finished watching Henry Louis Gates' series on the Black Church. Me too. And and I was really struck. I mean, they they deliberately talked about the role of music all the way through there, and the role of singing together. And one of the images that really struck me most strongly was um, in, uh, Trinity uh, United Church of Christ in Chicago, where uh, Jeremiah Wright was the pastor, and you could see the kind of community that they had built up there. And there was this, uh, an image of them at worship with him locking arms with other people in the congregation. And you could see that entire congregation was singing with nothing in front of them. But mm-hmm. They were fully engaged. I mean, it just struck me at, at the, in the sense that singing is a is sort of a sacrament of, of, uh, of people's commitment to common purpose and, and, and mission. And uh, boy, that was a powerful, powerful. That's really interesting that you use that word because in in a lot of evangelical circles now, the the language that they use to describe singing and worship, well, worship first of all, worship and singing get conflated all the time, mm-hmm. but they they talk about it using sacramental language. Um, when 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 you're talking to like a CCM crowd of worship leaders and stuff, you start hearing all these words that you normally hear when you hear Roman Catholics and Episcopalians talk about communion <laughs> it's really fascinating wow well yeah, that, yeah that's, mm. that's interesting that's good and that's kind of good segue into your part of it uh brian uh about the center for congregational song and the the kind of tasks that you do and the statements that kind of inform your tasks yeah you're uh, referencing on our website under the about us section we have this list of what what we call guiding stances and the reason we call them guiding stances is a little bit of a shout out to Brian Wren, the wonderful hymn writer, um, who at, at Brian writes um, very prophetic texts and, and and often uses language that's intentionally designed to upset or stir people out of their comfort zones. And he would often be asked about whether or not he'd be willing to change words or phrases within his hymns. And he says, my hymns, I am 100%, you know, uh, uh, not going to change my hymn text unless I'm told a story that convinces me otherwise. Hmm. Um, it, and he said that hmm. to, to say that, 
you know, he's very sure of himself and he's very thoughtful, but the power of story and the human experience cannot be, um, uh, cannot be understated. And so we call them guiding stances because we want them to be here is what we believe we should and could, should, and will do unless as we build relationships and as we encounter the people that we're, you know, journeying with, um, show us an experience that tells us otherwise. And we're willing to change in, in response to those very real experiences that come with a relationship. So um, things like, um, well, the very first one, we celebrate the width and depth of variety in the church's song throughout history, recognizing that each genre, like each culture or each person brings unique gifts and challenges to the church. Um, just that statement is something that we very highly value. And so far we haven't been convinced otherwise. So, um, that the church, the church's song has never been a monolith. That's like one of my soapboxes. Um, the church's song has never been one thing. There's no such thing as traditional church music. There's, there's, there are traditions of church music and congregational song. Um, and it just continues to sprout new branches. It continues to, and and we celebrate that. We celebrate that as a gift from God. We don't, we're not uh, offended or uh, scared of that diversity and that that breadth. We want to learn more about it and celebrate it and share it. Um, so there's a list of things like that that um, that we believe in that we think are really important. And we wanted to state them up front. It was one of the first things we did before launching the center was we created these guiding stances, um, with our group of advisors, um, who helped envision and create the center together. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, well, so talk each of you about your own spiritual journeys that got you here. <laughs> Uh, what, what in your own spiritual journey, uh, brought you to being in this effort and, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go first on that one. So, um, yours started before mine. So <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> uh, 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 that is so true. So, uh, you know, when I was, when I was, uh, young, uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was a church kid. I, I, I got involved with all the church stuff. I, I loved worship. I was in the church choir. Uh, I studied the piano. I studied the organ. Uh, I got to play through high school and college, and uh, I went to seminary. I was uh, going to be ordained a priest, Catholic. I, you know, grew up in the Catholic uh, Church, and uh, but uh, it, it, within the past, within the last year, I opted not not to continue. So I instead launched into a a career of ministry as a layperson in music and worship, Christian initiation, and I I was a full time music and liturgy person in, in churches for 25 years. And then I became uh, uh, the leader of a national organization of Catholic church musicians, uh, the National Association of Pastor Musicians. I did that for 12 years. Um, a turning point in my spiritual journey came when I uh, married my partner. And uh, we, uh, uh, I, I realized that marrying a person of the same sex was uh, a no-go in the Catholic church. and. Uh, so I, I found myself outside and uh, suddenly what gave me purpose, you know, my identity sort of uh, uh, had to uh, change. 
And uh, so I was uh, welcomed into a, a, a position within a, a church uh, of the uh, Christian Church Disciples of Christ and um, became music director there and, uh, um, you know, found that we all liked each other. And uh, so what, what, what my, my long time seminary uh, uh, background uh, came back into play and I was ordained a minister in, in the Christian church. And uh, so I am a disciples minister today. And uh, then um, my association with the Hymn Society just happened at the same time as uh, they needed a new executive director. And uh, so my lifelong interests in, in church and music and worship and congregational say, I mean, that all kind of converged. And my experience with leading an organization all converged at the Hymn Society. And, you know, I, I am just, I feel amazingly blessed that uh, uh, God's uh, providence has led me to this place. And uh, it's in surprise ways that I would never, ever have imagined. So that's the, that's the short version. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I grew up also in the church, except not uh, Catholic. I, although much to the chagrin of my grandparents who were Catholic, um, I grew up Presbyterian because my dad grew up Catholic, although he had a falling out with the church for various reasons. And my mom grew up Southern Baptist. And so they just pissed off both their parents and they became Presbyterian. Um, <laughs> and so, so I grew up Presbyterian uh, in South Georgia of, you know, great choir program. I mean, it was a relatively small church in the grand scheme of things, but it, it had enough um, resources to have a good choral program, a great organist, um, really great congregational singing and um, good Christian education. And um, yeah. And then I went to a Montreat music and worship conference pretty regularly, which is like the Mecca for Presbyterians who like worship. Um, that was kind of one of our family vacations every summer. And I think I was a junior in high school and John Bell was the preacher for the conference. And he was talking with the youth as part of his gig there. So I got to hear him talk every day and then hear him preach. And I was at the Huckleberry, which anyone who knows Montreat knows the Huckleberry. It's a little ice cream shop. I was getting ice cream with my friends and John Bell walks in because he was getting something, probably ice cream as well. And I said, Mr. Bell, uh, what is this Iona community thing you keep talking about? And he said, well, why don't you come sit with me? I'll tell you all about it. And I, I was like starstruck, right? Cause he's like the headliner clinician, the big cheese, you know, and I'm just like this, some stupid kid. And, and that made a huge impression on me. First of all, that someone so influential and like a big timer would sit down with a kid, you know, just on his free time. And he told me all about the Iona community. We probably talked for about a half hour while I was eating my ice cream and we we're just sitting on a bench outside and he said, if you, you should come to the hymn society, they, they take volunteers. And if you ever do, and you come through Glasgow, you can stay at my place or any of the Iona community members. Cause they, you know, we covenant to our place as a place of pilgrimage. So anyway, so two years later, after my freshman year in college, I went to the Iona community and spent nine weeks there as a volunteer. And I, the, the music and the liturgy, it, it just blew my mind I, it, because the Iona community is a place where people from all over the world come on pilgrimage. And I was working in the bookstore and everyone goes to the bookstore. And so I got to see people from Africa and Asia and all over Europe and South America, I, like literally all over the globe. I was working with Australians. I got to see them 
worship together and sing songs in like six different languages within one service and dance together. And I played drums and I learned how to play Boran, you know, from this Celtic guy. And I, I got to see the church basically. And it opened my eyes to, I met my first trans person that was in ministry. I, I mean, I grew up in South Georgia. There was no such thing as trans people in South Georgia. <laughs> like, I mean, there was obviously, but I did not know any. And like, I mean, it just blew up my church vision. And so I came back and I was doing a music ed degree and I thought, man, maybe I should do music ministry. And like a couple of weeks after getting back in the States, I got a call from my department of music um, chair and he said, Brian, <laughs> yes, Dr. Bostic, school's not in yet. What did I do wrong? You know, uh, Brian, do you want to work at the church? Uh, sure. Okay. You're going to be our new intern. And he had started an internship, a church music internship. And I was the first church music intern at this church. He was ramping down on retirement. And so he wanted to take a break. So he took some of his salary and he created an internship. So he wouldn't have to do as much stuff, but in a really gracious way. And so I, I was a church music intern for three years. And then I went to study with Michael Hahn, uh, cause I loved global music after the Siona experience and Michael's I mean, that's the place to go if you love global music and the church to do an MSM. And then I was on the board of the Hymn Society and we were making this job for the center. And I was <laughs> on the board and I was like, man, who, I, I went home. We had just finished the job description. We were like about to launch it. And I went home and I told my wife, I was like, whoever gets this job is going to be just the luckiest person. And she was like, well, you're, you're going to apply, right? And I was like, no. I was like, whoever gets this job is going to be like, <laughs> amazing like they're gonna be i i'm not quali <laughs> qualified so but she was like you need to apply for this job i was like all right i'll apply for it so i did i applied for it and i ended up getting it and and i tell people i have my dream job i'm really really lucky i i happened to be at the conference where it was announced that brian was going to be, to be the first director of the center and the excitement in that place was just amazing it really was a, a quite an experience they're just using me for my drumming skills. Ah! <laughs> well, I want to go back to the uh, uh, statement that you had made, Brian. I really like that uh, description about um, uh, staying the same until you have a story that changes you. <laughs> uh, and uh, I remember uh, listening to your uh, conference this year, one of the sections in which um, – uh, Paul Richardson uh, was talking and, and said that um, that the Hymn Society has always been as much about relationships as it has been about interest in its subject matter. Uh, and what you described seemed to illustrate that, but talk about that a little further. I don't know. Mike, Mike I think Mike might have some interesting well, stories well, on this. I'll start and you can pick up, but I, I think that uh, I think Paul's insight is so good because I think like any, a, a good, healthy organization is first about community. And I, I think that, you know, people come to the Hymn Society because they have grown to value one another and love one another and realize that they together want to make a difference in the world. You know, that they they are really into community. And I, I think that, that that thing about relationships is, is a, a really an important insight uh, for why the Hymn Society has continued to grow and expand. 
uh, it's because of uh, the, the health of relationships. And, you know, you observe it. I mean, you know, you can see the little clusters of people at, at, at meetings who have grown to really have these incredibly warm, close relationships, even though that's they met at the Hymn Society, like, like the, the T-shirt ladies, uh, uh, you, know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, these four uh, octogenarians who have been coming to the Hymn Society together for years and years and years. And, you know, have had wonderful careers in promoting congregational song and they hang out together, but they don't just mm. hang out with each other. They, they are, that's another thing that him site tends not to be clicky. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been in clicky organizations, but uh, you, there's a genuine sense of welcome and uh, openness I've, I've experienced. So I, I think Paul's right on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, in addition to doing the conferences and, and the quarterly, the HIM, uh, what other resources do you all provide? Well, um, I mean, the, the monthly stanza that we do is our digital newsletter. You know, everyone has a digital newsletter, but I really love ours. Um, I, I feel like this is like us tooting our own horn, but, <laughs> but it comes from a very authentic place. Um, well, part of the reason for this interview is to do <laughs> All right, that. well, I'll, I'll toot away then. Um, <laughs> the the stand is really, it's really awesome because it, it has member news and it, it highlights what people are doing, but it but it it always has like really useful resources, like awesome jobs that have come up. Or like Michael Hahn has a thing where he highlights articles from the Canterbury Dictionary on certain themes. Um, just you know, or updates, like as a hymnal committee does their thing, we'll, we'll occasionally put an update from a hymnal committee so you kind of know what they're up to and just so much stuff. If you're interested in congregational song, when you get the stanza, it's like, wow, look at all these different things that I can learn about or click on and and get more information on. So just, just that is wonderful and it's free. I mean, you don't even have to be a member. You can just sign up for the newsletter for that. Um, but um, I mean, our number one resource is the people. I do this all, and I know Mike does this too. We'll get questions. You know, people will, will be like, okay, I just found you because my, my favorite question I think I've ever gotten was there was someone who, there was this Lutheran chorale that they had wanted to use or was researching from the 1700s, and it was based on the Latin chant and they couldn't find the origins of the Latin chant or when and how it was translated and turned into the Lutheran chorale or something. It was like this crazy complex question. They sent it to me and I was just like, I was like, A, I don't know half of what you're talking about. <laughs> B, I know exactly who to point you towards. And so like I gave them two emails and I emailed them and I, I just connected those three people. I was like, I'm sure one of you will be able to, to to help this person. And sure enough, they like helped them do the research and like figure out exactly what they needed to learn because the hymn society is full of people who are just really good at what they do. And so that's that's the number one resource is just these these wonderful people who not only are experts in their field, but they want to share their knowledge and and they're really humble about who they are and and they're just happy to help. Um there's lots of other practical stuff, but yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, we have we also do events outside of conference mm. time, especially especially COVID has sort of given us uh, the impetus to 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 do more uh, during the year. So you know, we're running a couple of different webinar series uh, mm -hmm. during the year. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's really given us an opportunity to gather people together to look into things that we have the the access point for people to make discoveries about congregational song. For mm-hmm. example, we have one last month uh, on Caribbean hymnody, and uh, there were six leaders from different islands who sort of gave a little mini presentation on the development of congregational song within the past 30 or 40 years on that island. Well, that was just mind blowing to hear that, hear that, that, and, and to be able to be in the same room with them virtually for an hour and a half. Uh, so it, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that we have is that that's relationships too, you know, that we are able to connect people from all parts of the world to learn from one another and to mm-hmm. value uh, the work that one another is doing. Mm-hmm. Also, Brian, you know, has this program at the center called the Ambassadors, and you know, it's young uh, people who are have really studied and uh, have become uh, experts uh, in in church music, who are going out there uh, giving talks and uh, connecting with other young people. And we've had them doing webinars this year too, which has also yep. been really cool to see the incredible gifts of young people that are developing. And anybody that's getting worried about our field, they shouldn't be because uh, we have amazing talent uh, coming up uh, from, from the young people. Mm-hmm. Well, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> uh, we are out of time now. Uh, but I am deeply grateful for this conversation. And, uh, you know, I know that there's much more that we have to talk about and will talk about. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that in the future. Uh, but it, thank you for this, uh, that we've done tonight. Well, hey, you're really, fun to talk to. Yeah, you are fun to talk to. We, we just have gone on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, as I say, I'm grateful to you both and we'll be back well, in touch. David. So you are. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth.